are listening to Radical Advice on BFF.fm. I am your host, Lily Sloan, and I'm a psychotherapist in San Francisco. This is a show where we talk about the intersection of psychotherapy, personal growth, and activism. If you would like to join in the conversation, you can tweet at me during the show at, at radical underscore advice, or you can treat, treat at me, tweet at me anytime. You can also treat me anytime, whatever. If you have life questions you want addressed at a future date, please submit them uh, at radicaladviceshow.com. It's totally anonymous. Uh, even if you gave me your name, I wouldn't share it on the show. So it'd be great to hear from you. Also, just as a reminder, the show does not replace mental health treatment. If you have something specific going on, it's always good to speak with a trained professional. Um, So before I bring in the guest that I have here in the studio with me right now, why don't we start with a Tuesday morning check-in. So take a moment to... Step away from whatever you're doing, mentally or physically or both. Make a little space to tune in with yourself. It's the time to see if you can sit with what's happening in your mind and in your body with as little judgment as possible. And even if judgment is what's going on, a part of you can observe that as well. It can help to start with paying attention to your breath. Just noticing the inhalations and exhalations. moment as soon as it comes it's gone presence is constantly moving changing it can be hard to sit in that place and it can be really relieving to just focus on that one thing just keep breathing and noticing where you're at.
remember you can do that multiple times throughout the day in all kinds of places and situations it doesn't have to look one particular way um, before I move into a song to introduce today's guest I just want to um, shout out all the people who showed up for the climate strike on Friday all the and the teenagers and uh, Greta Thornburg who um, really led this movement and I'm I'm just I'm really impressed and grateful and I think it's so important when when I'm feeling kind of burnt out and hopeless and powerless that there are other people who are taking the reins and showing up with so much power and I I just I'm I can't be I can't express how how grateful for that I am but uh, I'm really excited to bring in the guest my guest today we're gonna start with a song that she picked called 500 miles um, as performed by Roseanne Cash uh, you are listening to Radical Advice on BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever. If you miss the train I'm on and you'll know that I have gone You can hear the whistle blow A hundred miles A hundred miles A hundred miles A hundred miles One hundred miles You can hear the whistle blow A hundred miles Teardrops fell on Mama's note When I read the things she wrote She said, we miss you, hon, we love you Come on home Well, I didn't have to pack I had it all right on my back Now I'm five hundred Away from home Lord, I'm one Lord, I'm two Lord, I'm three Oh, Lord, I'm four Lord, I'm five hundred miles Away from Still 500 miles away 
You are listening to Radical Advice on BFF.fm, Best Frequencies Forever. That was 500 Miles by, as performed by Roseanne Cash. Um, hi, Mariel. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for being here. Mariel Berg is my guest today, and she picked that song. Can you say a little something about it before we dive into everything else? I picked that song because it's one of my favorites. It's, I was originally introduced to it when I um, first heard Roseanne Cash's The List, which I believe is a list of Americana songs that her father, Johnny Cash, put together and she performed. So 500 Miles is a old song. I don't know quite how old it is. And I love how she sings it. And for me, it just evokes a longing for a sense of home a sense of belonging, whether that's actually a literal home to go back to um, or a metaphorical home. And there's a real um, melancholy longing in there that I can certainly relate to at times. And I know many of the folks I work with can, can probably relate to as well. Mm. Oh, God, I can, I can certainly relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just such a human, yeah. I, th- I think. I mean, I'm always a little hesitant to assume something's universal, but it seems pretty up there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe it's uh, galactic <laughs> on some level. <laughs> longing for home and belonging and a sense of place. Yeah. Not not knowing where that is. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I'm really excited to have you because, you know, I've known you a long time and we've I don't know if worked together is the right way to put it. Um, mm-hmm. We collab uh, collaborated is the right way to put it. We've we've uh, been colleagues for a long time though, and supporting each other in, in our work, and um, and it's just really great to have you here finally. So can you can you say a little bit about um, you know what what your work is and and you, you know and how how you do your practice here. So I'm working currently in in two different realms. So my primary work is my small therapy group practice called the Bay Area DBT and Couples Counseling Center. We're located in the Castro, and we focus primarily on DBT, which we'll be talking about a bunch today, as well as couples therapy. And I have a new podcast focused on DBT. It might expand over time, but right now it's myself and my colleague, Ed, really doing a deep dive into the DBT skills and that's Mm. called the skillful podcast and then I've also branched out more recently into online coaching and have started a second podcast (laughs) called (laughs) it's just a cookie you can't have enough podcasts you know I I, I will probably get burnt out on them at some point but right now you should add a few more (laughs) just just for the heck of it yeah because I yeah just for fun so this one's it's just a cookie yes and that um, more information about that can be, f- and that online coaching business can be found at cookierevolution.org. And that's a, um, a coaching practice that's focused primarily on healing from food and body image issues from a health at every size and intuitive e- eating perspective. And if folks are unfamiliar with what those terms mean, We'll talk about them. Yeah, we will. Um, but, but first, I think there's plenty of people who are really unfamiliar with what DBT is. So we're going to spend the first portion of our chat uh, talking about 
that. And we'll, we'll come to the food and body image stuff a little later in the show. But can you, can you say, I, I only know very, on a very surface level, what DBT is about. Um, and that is something that you not only have been trained in, but you've also trained other people and you've, you've taught how to do that work along with doing that as a therapist. And can you explain what that is as a modality? So DBT stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy. So it's a, it's a bit of a mouthful, mm-hmm. and it's a form of therapy that was developed by Marsha Linehan. I believe it started sometime in the late 1980s. And she was a psychologist working out of the University of Seattle or Washington, somewhere in Washington State. I may not have all the facts because they're not in front of me correct. Mm. Um, but so she, she wanted to work with people who were suicidal or self-harming. She was really motivated to focus on what she would call, or I've heard her talk about, um, the people who are suffering the most or in the Mm -hmm. most pain. And she felt like people who wanted to kill themselves were likely in the most emotional, psychological pain. And she had been trained as a CBT therapist, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And what she found was that the push for change, which is really inherent in CBT, was quite invalidating to folks who were in so much emotional suffering. Mm. So it, it was backfiring. Her, her work with them, her treatment just wasn't, wasn't helping. And so she came up with a modification of CBT, which is the DBT, the dialectical piece. Um, so it brings in some components of CBT, but also brings in this dialectical piece, which is really about... Um, working on both acceptance and change simultaneously. So we're not always pushing for change and improvement. We're also working a lot on acceptance and being with whatever is present in the moment. And she drew a lot from her training as in Zen Buddhism. So Mm -hmm. mindfulness Mm -hmm. is a huge piece and a big sort of avenue or pathway to work with the acceptance piece. Yeah. That's, I really, I really appreciate that modification because I'm noticing myself as a, just dealing with myself and my own issues, but also as a therapist, how, um, I don't know, just, just how trying to push for change has just hit so many dead ends, mm-hmm. like constantly. And I, and I think that so much shame comes along with it. And, and I think that's kind of what you're saying is that piece around um, being in too much pain to be able to really respond to that. And then you're already in pain and then you're like, wow, I'm failing at changing and I'm I'm the worst. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm right. the I'm the absolute worst. <laughs> yeah. Why can't I change? Why can't I change? Yeah. yeah. And the push for change that a therapist might be. um promoting or that they might be pushing for or advocating um, can feel, as I said, super invalidating to someone who's suffering because there's a way it can feel like, don't you see how, how much I'm struggling? I can't do X, Y, Z. I can barely get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Right. As an example. Right. And I mean, and that's such a power struggle that like, I think, 
people get caught up in with, you know, family and loved ones when they're suffering. People get caught up in with their therapists, too. It can be really hard, um, I know, as a therapist to, to kind of, like, I have to work on accepting them where they're at mm-hmm. in order for in order for them to also not feel that that internal that constant internal pressure yes yeah yeah so so what is um i know there's there's a couple ways that there's the deep db doing dbt in sessions with like individuals but i know that these dbt groups skills groups are like a, a big cornerstone of, of that. And I'm wondering what that looks like because it's really different than other group therapy. Yeah, so there's there's actually what's called four modes of treatment in DBT, and I'll, I'll break it down a little bit. So the first one is the individual therapy piece, which is usually weekly, sometimes more, meetings with your DBT therapist. And that's usually done in conjunction with a weekly DBT skills group. The third piece, if you're doing the full or adherent model of DBT, also includes, and this is a pretty unique piece, it includes what's called phone skills coaching from your therapist. Hmm. So that means between sessions, you can contact your therapist, not just to you know process something or not to do a therapy session kind of on the phone or through text, but for help in applying the skills. Hmm. And Marsha Linehan and her... Um, trying to think i think it's her her original text that she wrote and came out maybe in early 90s um likened it to being a coach so Mm -hmm. if you're if you're teaching someone new skills and they learn it you know while they're in a skills group but then they're out in their life and they're having an argument with their significant other and they're feeling really emotionally distraught it can be really helpful to reach out to their coach which Mm -hmm. is in the dbt model as their therapist and get timely kind of coaching which doesn't mean that as a dbt therapist i'm going to be able to respond immediately you know i respond as quickly as i can right right. but that can be very helpful so then it's not just sort of theory or ideas it helps the person use the skills in the moment and just to backtrack i didn't talk about the all the four modes i talked about individual group um, weekly phone skills coaching and then there's this other piece which is not um visible to the client or the person in dbt but it's an important thing to keep in mind if you're searching for dbt therapy therapy is this thing called dbt team and that's for the therapist that's to really help support the therapist that's essentially weekly consultation that follows a particular format and help it's really um helps keep the therapist um applying the modality as it's supposed to be applied. Let me think, I, I want to think of a different way of saying this. It's, it's I might say it's DBT for the therapist. Uh-huh, so helping uh-huh. the therapist not get kind of split into black and white thinking, helping the therapist use skills for themselves if they need to, helping yeah. them to think dialectically. So if you're looking yeah. for a DBT therapist, it's perfectly fine to ask them if they are part of a DBT team. Interesting. So... Yeah, I, I mean, I'm kind of curious because as a therapist, I tend, I, I would say I'm pretty eclectic, you know, like I've kind of, and I don't know, my inner critic can be like, that's a cop out because you didn't want to deep dive into one way of working, but I'm going to put that aside for now <laughs> um, because I'm me and I'm doing it my way. But I just, I wonder what that looks like being a DBT therapist 
is, you know, and where the the way of working at while adhering to the model is pretty structured, it sounds like. And so I'm wondering in the individual therapy part of it, what that means for the sessions. Is there is there room to kind of like veer around in that or how do you kind of how do you do you kind of have your own style of doing it or how does that show up? I definitely have my own style and I imagine every DBT therapist brings their own way of working in and that colors the session and I've been trained somatically which is working more with the body I've also been trained psychodynamically so all those things influence how I do DBT Mm -hmm. Um, but a structure that I find very helpful for individual DBT sessions that probably all or most DBT therapists are following is involves a way of prioritizing what to focus on in any given session so if I'm working with someone who's having a lot of crisis and some very difficult things going on suppose they are um, self-harming Um, fighting with their significant other on a regular basis and engaging in eating disorder behavior. Mm -hmm. If I'm following the DBT model and doing that kind of therapy with them, I would focus on the self-harming first Uh, to begin. So it's a way of um, helping me as the therapist kind of prioritize what in the DBT world we would um, kind of label as some of the most dangerous kind of behavior. Oh, interesting. And you and you would prioritize self-harming over the eating disorder behaviors. Well, that you know, with caveats, it's just depending yeah. on how serious and what right, exactly right, right. is you know the eating disorder behavior is. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I know. I I just know that. Yeah. I've a lot of the time those things all kind of go together, and you're like, ah, uh, uh, exactly. Where do we go? What do we do? <laughs> and that. I, you know, I, I imagine part of doing that DBT on yourself thing is managing your own anxiety about, you know, the person's uh, crises. Yes. And how to not get caught up in needing to fix it. Absolutely. It helps me, it helps me be focused and grounded in session with someone who is, is struggling in a very severe way. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's really hard work. It is, and and that's the important or necessary piece of the team. I could not do it without my team supporting me. I think one of the premises also behind the DBT team, which is DBT for the therapist, is that if you're working with people who are having multiple high-risk behaviors or who are having a lot of suicidal thoughts or suicide attempts or self-harming, it's really stressful. And so a lot of therapists don't want to do that kind of work yeah. because it's so stressful. It's really, it's really hard. And the DBT team helps support me as a therapist in, um, in doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you said that there are skills that, that your uh, clients are being taught, both in, in, in the individual therapy and in the group and in those like uh, follow-up um, calls or texts throughout the week what what are the skills like what are they what are the skills they're trying to learn so I love the skills I'm so glad you asked (laughs) so I'm also like please teach me the skills (laughs) because all right let's do it in 20 minutes I'll give you all of them (laughs) just make me make me okay (laughs) 
I think you are okay as you are, Lily. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and I respect that you want to change. So both. That's the dialectic piece. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I just want to... Um, say some kind of caveats before I go into what the skills are or talk more about them is that, you know, sometimes people come to DBT and they, you know, they're so ready, they're so eager and they want it to work right away. Yeah. So the skills like anything else in life, any kind of lasting change or shift, it takes time. So I advise people, or at least, you know, the recommendation we give is for folks to stay in DBT skills group for a year Mm. or at minimum six months. So that's with six months, that's usually enough time to go through all the skills at least once, but to really learn them and have a skill dexterity, meaning you're able to um, just pull a skill, you know, off the top of your head and use it in the moment, it it usually takes longer. And we have sometimes people who stay for for much longer than that. Got it. Mm -hmm. Because the skills are, are rich and complex and um, take some take some time. So I'm not going to learn them in 20 minutes. No, I was. <laughs> you'll get an overview. <laughs> All right, give me my overview. Yeah, here's your overview. Maybe, but maybe I'm special. Maybe it will only take me 20 minutes. Everyone says that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So I'm really not special. special. I'm so sorry. Okay, <laughs> skills. But myself included, I also felt like, oh, yeah, I'm going to learn these, you know, overnight. It's taken yeah. me a long time. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, yeah. it's like when people, I mean, this happens a lot, so it's a little bit of a detour, but this happens a lot, I find. It's like, and I've done this, and I've, I have clients do this, where it's like, oh, I read about this thing, and it really blew my mind, and was a really, maybe even a cathartic experience to read a particular book or article or watch a particular TED talk or, you know, whatever it is. And I think there can be this expectation that that was enough that because in the moment you're shook, you know, yes, but it, it, it's not, it's, it has to be, there has to be repetition. Uh, yeah. That's a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up because there can be that aho moment that, that moment of, um, as you said, waking up or recognition, oh, this is explaining something about me. You know, yeah. a light bulb goes off. But unless there's some sort of process around it and integration, um, it, it those kind of things don't often lead to lasting change in and yeah. of themselves. I right. wish it was the case that we could all just watch a TED Talk on <laughs> depression and it yeah. would be done with, but it doesn't yeah. work that way. Yeah, it means a lot to feel seen, you know, when we see ourselves kind of reflected back in these things. But it's... Um, kind of just like the beginning of a particular exploration yes yeah which can be exciting so to circle back to the skills there are four sets of skills and the first one is mindfulness skills and that's actually the one set of skills that we repeat between the other skills so um, it's the foundation or the backbone of dbt Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's mindfulness skills then there's distress tolerance skills which essentially are skills that help you get through distressing times or stressful times without making things worse, without lashing out at someone or engaging in any kind of self-destructive or addictive behavior. So those are skills to help you ride out kind of emotional upheaval without creating more problems for yourself. So what, what does that mean? Like what, what does that look like? 
So there's a set of distress, so there's a whole bunch of distress tolerance skills. So we Mm -hmm. teach a range of different ways to help people get through those moments because some people are really going to, some skills are really going to resonate with some people and other skills will resonate with other folks. Mm -hmm. And depending on the situation, you might need a lot of different tools in your toolbox Mm -hmm. to help you through hard times. Right, right. You need options. Yes. But Mm -hmm. to give an example, I call these the 911 of distress tolerance. So when your distress is so high that you can't think very clearly. There's a um, there's something called the TIP skills. So there's lots of acronyms in DBT, which is just something I've I've had to learn to radically accept, which is also a skill because <laughs> they can be they, they they can be a little challenging for me. But so TIP, um, and so the T stands for temperature. So that's um, changing your physiology by dunking your head in a bowl of very cold water. Wait, wait, this is an actual skill? <laughs> this is an actual skill in our skills group. So we don't have bowls of cold water. I wish we did, but we haven't been able to logistically figure out how to do that. But oh, we bring in God. bags of ice and we all kind of stand up. So what it does, oh, let me just say, so we stand up and we hold our breaths and we um, kind of bend over and hold the bags of ice over our Um, our eyes and our cheeks, our foreheads for, I can't remember, maybe it's 30 seconds and you hold your breath. What this does, and it's more effective generally if you actually can stick your head in a bowl of cold water and hold your breath. I know you're like, what, Lily? My mind is blown. I just had no idea. I didn't... I didn't know it was happening in these groups. This, it's wild. We got ice flying. Yeah, it's it's really, I know. You didn't learn this in your first day of therapy school, did you? Or my last. Or your last. Me neither. I had or to do middle. it. Right, I had to do some outside training. <laughs> okay. It's it's super effective wow. um, for folks. So, And you have to be willing to try because I've had people say like, oh, please, this isn't going to help. But yeah, it, it can be incredibly effective. What it does is it stimulates what's called the dive response. I'm not a diver, but I've had divers in my group attest to this, where um, I guess when you immerse yourself in cold water and you're holding your breath, the um, your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of your nervous system that is related to rest, comes yeah. on board. So okay. it, it settles down your nervous system pretty quickly. Mm, wow, wow. So if anyone is listening and wants to try it, well, first of all, if you feel like you need DBT, absolutely seek out a, a trained DBT therapist. Yeah, but yeah. Um, if you want to try the skill yourself, I mean, you can just Google. You can go to, um, you know, the you can Google distress tolerance DBT tip skills. You can listen to the Skillful podcast where mm-hmm. um, we talk about it in some detail. Um, but try it out, not when you're in super high distress, not when you just found out you're getting fired from your job or someone you love has a terminal illness. Like try it when you're just like maybe a little irritated, you're having like a rough morning, you're, you know, there's a slight irritation because I mean, I could probably use it like multiple times a day. Totally. Most totally. days. Most so. of, I, we probably all could. <laughs> and so with just, all, where's my bucket of cold, cold water? water. <laughs> And the reason why it's helpful to try it um, for the first few times when you just have a mild level of distress is to begin to sort of get, um, um, is to begin to experiment with it and see what works for you. Does the ice work? Does it, um, is the bucket, do you actually need like the bowl of cold water? How cold should it be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can you just splash cold water on your face? Mm. Some people, you know, find that helpful because you might be in a work situation where you can't actually 
fill up, you know, the sink in the bathroom with cold water and go through the whole thing. So trying different ways to get a similar effect. I worked with someone um, who went through DBT and found this skill so helpful that in her backpack, she carried her around a little, um, a little cooler with an ice pack in it. And when she was having a hard time, she'd whip out her ice pack, she'd hold it over her face and it would really help calm her down. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, I've been using ice packs lately when I have like a migrainey headache kind of thing, just because it's the only thing that seems to give me any relief. But, Mm -hmm. um, now I, now I look forward to using (laughs) in so many ways. Okay. So, so there's more, there's more of those, but I really like that example of these, uh, distress tolerance kind of, so you're, you're trying to manage your distress. Yes by approaching it physiologically. And are all of those physiological kind of approaches within that? No, the tip skills that they involve pace breathing and intense exercise, something called paired muscle relaxation. Those are all about dealing with your physiology and actually changing the kind of state of your body. And there are other distress tolerance skills that are are sort of have a different um, kind of flavor to them. Got it, okay. since we we probably don't have time to go into all of them and i think the ice water was exciting enough what are what are the other um so we we talked about um can you just say what the first two dbt yes. skills were that you mentioned so we, did, again? we did mindfulness, mindfulness. And we talked about distress tolerance so, okay and then what else then there's emotion regulation and interpersonal effectiveness okay and what's that so emotion regulation that is a whole module of skills that help you learn to change unwanted or painful emotions. That's one, that's sort of like half of the emotion regulation skills. And the other half of the emotion regulation skills that we teach are more about reducing your vulnerability to being super emotional in the first place. Hmm, interesting. And so the piece around changing emotions is often like, whoa, people are like, wait, I'm supposed to change my emotions? I'm, I'm thought like, in yeah. therapy, we're I can't supposed help. to feel. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah right, right, right. I know. Well, and sometimes I'll be like, I guess my feelings are a choice, but it doesn't feel like a choice. Mm-hmm. This is just how I feel. <laughs> it's in, an involuntary reaction. Well, so yes, and um, I'll, I'll share a couple of my, my favorite and most useful skills of the emotion regulation skills, and they're called um, check the facts and opposite action. Mm-hmm. So sometimes our emotions that we're feeling especially intense negative emotions aren't necessarily about what's actually happening aren't necessarily about the facts they're about assumptions or interpretations that's very true right or stories we're telling ourselves yeah and it can be so painful right right and so the check the fact skills kind of lead you through a process to really see if your emotions are actually fitting the facts. And you only use the skill on emotions that you want to change if you're really having a hard time and you're convinced, you know, a friend didn't call you back because they hate you. <laughs> right? Because you said uh, whatever and they, yeah. you know, and so you're really suffering. So you can go through the process of checking the facts and oftentimes just doing that can bring down the painful emotion significantly because you may realize like, I actually don't have any facts that back this up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling insecure or scared or I'm missing my friend or whatever else it might be. Or, you know, being 
some history of being rejected or abandoned from my past is actually getting triggered. God damn it. Right. <laughs> and it's not a, that this friend hates me. Yeah. Right. I just, yeah, I guess I need to be in DPT therapy. Well, when I talk about DBT, like I feel like everyone is like, I need to do DBT. Yeah. I don't think we all need to do it. Yeah. Um, I think though, so many people, myself included, you know, can really benefit. And as a DBT therapist, we have been encouraged to really practice what we preach. Right. So right. to use the skills ourselves. And so I try to do that as, as much as I can. And um, I feel that's such a, a gift I've gotten is that I, I actually have to you know, I teach them weekly, twice a week, and explain them to people. And that has really shifted things in my life. That's amazing. I mean, it, it just, you know, it seems like it takes a lot of concerted effort to, to, to just slog through it all. You know, like, I, I know for myself, there's a lot of me that just wants to, like, vent and have cathar- catharsis and be emotional and not and not really deal with it (laughs) otherwise and I think there's a place for that and that people because dbt and doing the individual and the group um it's a lot of work it's people who are really wanting um a big change who are really struggling who've maybe tried other kinds of therapy and it hasn't been as helpful as they've wanted it to be those are the kind of folks who often show up in our DBT skills group. Yeah, yeah, right. So, okay, so there's emotional regulation and checking the facts. And then are there, there's more. There's more. Can I talk about another emotion regulation yeah, yeah, skill yeah, that I love? Yeah, yeah, please do, please do. Now that you got me started. Um, yeah. So that in conjunction, or I feel like what follows on the heel of check the facts, sometimes we can check the facts. Suppose you go, you know, your friend hasn't contacted you. You're convinced that your friend hates you. You check the facts, you realize that there aren't actual facts to back up your emotion, but you're still feeling really upset or angry or hurt. Yep. There's this awesome skill called opposite action. Oh, right. Okay. Which is essentially doing the opposite of what your emotion is telling you to do. So if you, if your emotion is telling you to, because you're feeling really sad, you haven't heard from your friend is telling you to withdraw, turn off your phone, close the shades, you know whatever your sadness might be telling you to do the skill it asks you to figure out what your emotion is motivating you to do and to do the opposite so engage with people go out in the world do the opposite of whatever your sadness is telling you to do and if you do that a hundred percent like full-on do the opposite of what your emotion is telling you to do it will shift it's pretty mm-hmm. amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a bit a little bit of like you know fake it till you make it yeah 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 totally yeah i've experienced that fake that fake it till you make it type thing work in certain situations like um i remember years ago um just kind of getting in fights with my partner about alcohol and me feeling like anxious about his drinking and like you know so there was a party coming up and I was feeling anxious about what that was going to be like and I didn't really drink at the time and I decided to I just made a very clear decision to not to, to be somebody who didn't care how much my partner drank and didn't pay attention to how many drinks my partner was having mm-hmm. and it totally worked I mean <laughs> I, I can't say that will always work but it 
it really worked in that situation. And it was really remarkable to me that that, that I could just decide to be someone who doesn't care when I'm always someone who does care. Mm-hmm. That, that that would actually have do something. Yes, it is pretty remarkable. Could you just say a little bit more? How, how did it work? Is that it wasn't a concern for you anymore? It, in the situation, I, yeah, it's like I can't fully explain what happened. It's like I turned off the part of me that was concerned. And I didn't spend a lot of time, like, with him at the party either. Like, I kind of noticed myself being less anxiously attached. Like, being being like, oh, I'm just going to, like... I, like he is doing something else somewhere somewhere else in this build in this house and I don't I'm just I'm just present with what I'm doing and who I'm talking to mm-hmm. and yeah I, I don't I don't know I feel like there must have been something leading up to it that even allowed me to make the decision yeah so my my like my mindset was already shifted a little bit yeah and I'm sure it made your experience of the party so much more enjoyable Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm looking back. Maybe it was because I didn't hang out with him at the party. (laughs) (laughs) Good day. Good day. (laughs) That could be it. (laughs) That's that's a DBT skill, folks, is uh, avoid your your lame-ass boyfriend. boyfriend. (laughs) That's the number one skill we teach. Yes. I shouldn't say lame. Um, Your jerk boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Anyway. that's really that's really interesting and, and and it's tricky. I feel like these things are tricky because it's this whole thing of like we don't want to invalidate people's feelings and experience. And also how do you kind of talk about it in a way that's not invalidating but leaves room for experimentation to kind of try a different approach. Yes. That's why if you're trying out check the facts and opposite action don't do it on an emotion that someone else has told you you should change. Like you shouldn't be so angry or you shouldn't be so sad. Only do it on an emotion that you actually want to change because it doesn't feel yeah, good. It's right. getting in the way of you living the life you want. And that desire for change can't come from shame. Exactly. And I think that that's definitely like the shoulds, the hangups. Yeah. 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 Um. So are there other primary skill uh, categories. Oh, so we, the last one was interpersonal effectiveness, which we didn't talk about mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's the fourth and final um, skill category. And those are skills that are about helping people ask for what they want to need, yeah. helping folks say a clear no when they need to, and helping folks also um, maintain their self-respect when they're asking for things or saying no or setting limits. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, everything kind of comes down to interpersonal stuff anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. How we deal with our relationships. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think we should take a song break and come back and do a listener question. And I think this was kind of a good, a good like starting point for DBT. But I think people should definitely, if they're interested, check out your podcast and your website um, to learn more about. It. So it's the Skillful Pat Podcast. Yep. Cool. Um, well, let's hear a song 
Uh, there's a new one from Perfume Genius, which is pretty exciting. Eye in the Wall. Um, you are listening to Radical Advice on BFF.FM. Keep listening. Community Radio. All your friends are doing it. 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 Best frequencies forever.
listening to Radical Advice on BFF.fm, Best Frequencies Forever. That was a brand new Perfume Genius song, Eye in the Wall. I guess there's an album coming up soon. Um, Forgot how long that song was, but I think it's pretty dynamic and beautiful. Um, So joining me here in the studio is Marielle Berg, psychotherapist here in San Francisco with a with a group practice focused around dialectical behavior therapy and couples therapy and a couple podcasts. And we just spent a chunk of time talking about kind of the basics of DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And um, we'll come back to a little bit more about that because there was, there was, I mean, there's a lot more to say, but there's a little bit more you wanted to touch on for sure today. Um, But before we do that, it's time for a listener question. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So this one's about feelings. This is the thing we talk about on the show. Um, This person writes, how do you know if you're feeling your feelings or if you're full tilt engaged in your defenses? Like I go through shit that should bother me, but it doesn't. And I'll wonder why I don't feel anything. People ask me how I feel all the time and legitimately don't know and don't know how to answer that, you know? I do. I mean, I know that's a thing. I mean, I don't know personally <laughs> because I have the opposite problem, but I, I, I don't know. It, it's not, it's not uncommon that I have people in my office who are like truly at a loss to like describe feelings. And it's hard to know, like this person is saying, is it because they're out of touch with what that means or is it because they really don't have a lot to report it is hard to know and of course we don't know the whole story right but going from this little bit that this with this question i start to think about how when we have folks come in for dbt there's definitely a portion of people who are similar to you lily and to myself where we feel a lot and we know what we're feeling kind of all the time. Yeah. Or most of the time. And maybe we knew that before, but certainly as therapists, we have had a whole training. So yeah. we certainly know it now. Well, and I just make up more feelings if there's a, if there's any gap, you just, know. Just, 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 for, like, just for the heck just of it. Just throw some more in there. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also people who come into DBT. And I'm not saying without knowing more about this um, listener that DBT is the right fit. Yeah. But there certainly are... A portion of people who come into DBT who, when you ask them what they're feeling, they it's like looking into the fog. They, they have no idea. There isn't really a language around feelings or a familiarity. And in the emotion regulation module, one of the first things we do is we have um, a whole bunch of worksheets. I think there's 10 of them that list the primary emotions, anger, fear, jealousy, shame, guilt, joy, etc mm-hmm. and then it, the worksheets are really great because they list the primary emotions then they list the um all the different gradations of those emotions so if anger is a primary emotion you can be irritated which is like a lesser version of anger or you can be rageful right. which is like anger to the max right then it lists i don't know exactly because i don't have it in front of me but it um it talks about the prompting events for feelings of anger maybe someone crossed a boundary or disrespected you Mm-hmm. It talks about the biological changes, like what happens in your body when you get angry. Maybe your heart starts beating fast or you feel your face getting flushed. 
it talks about beliefs or interpretations that go along with anger. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. someone has wronged me or something like that. And then it also talks about the after effects of anger. Yeah. So there's it really breaks down all the pieces of what happens with each of the emotions. And those, um, those things that we cover in skills group can be super helpful for the kind of person who is confused about what they're feeling. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I mean, I think no matter where you are on the on the spectrum of emotionality, there's still confusion. I mean, I can be so flooded by my emotions that it can be hard to parse them out or to even know what I want to respond to or um, be able to, yeah, know what know what's even going on in there besides overwhelm. Yes. And I think some people respond to being overwhelmed by their feelings to being shut down to them. Totally. And it might end up looking like or feeling like a kind of numbness or like a like a non-feeling place. Mm-hmm. And that could be a defense mechanism. Like that that could be that some this person is totally engaged in their defenses in a way that but but even there, there's an assumption that that's bad. Like mm-hmm. m- maybe their defenses are really helping them get through tough things. You know, we have defenses for a reason, and and thank God we do. Yeah, yeah. But I I kind of doubt that some, and I don't know if this is my personal bias or my understanding of, you know, hu- the human condition as a therapist. But like I kind of doubt this person doesn't feel anything. And and it could be that they're not used to putting words to feelings yes and that that's something that they could could work on is like like you're talking about learning to identify what are the physiological sensations that are occurring what what's happening around me oh like maybe what these things add up to is something called irritation Mm -hmm. (laughs) or maybe what these things add up to is something called sadness but i I didn't have the words for that. I didn't know what what it meant when I would just sort of like lose a day to Netflix. Yeah. Or, you know, some uh, and that could mean different things for different people. But like learning to just put put words to it. And as a therapist, I'm often kind of working on that with people. If I'm like, so how are you doing? And they're like, I'm good that's fine in normal conversation that's just kind of how it is but I, I might push a little more and be like mm, what does that mean like mm-hmm. what is what is good like are, are there f- some other feeling words in there or, mm-hmm. and what do you feel in your body what you know what's what's that like right now so you're really helping people get emotionally fluent I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. And if we don't learn this in our families growing up, and so many of us don't, it's we have to learn it somewhere. Yeah. And a lot of times therapy is the place where we really learn it. Well, and they don't teach it in school very well. I think, you know, and I think that varies depending on the school and the teacher and, and all of that. And um, But I think that's even part of the bigger conversation around what are we going to do, for instance, about toxic masculinity what do we do about uh gun violence and sexual violence and all of these things like how do we raise people and men in these conversations it's sometimes particularly about men because women get more socialization around this stuff but we need help too because there's some dark 
sides to how that's done. But like, how do how do we get people to understand how how they're what they're feeling and what they need and yes. how to express that clearly to other people? Yes. And without, you know, needing to act out or, you know, do violence or be entitled or, you know, whatever it is. This conversation makes me think about how men and these these are broad strokes when I'm saying this, where people socialized as men. The um, certain emotions are, you know, emotions that have to do with more vulnerable feelings or more taboo. Yep. And so men get to feel angry. Mm-hmm. And um, women generally, and folks socialize as women, anger is taboo. Right. It's, it's not right. okay to feel. Right. We, we get to be, we're allowed to be like sad or. Um, yes. And every. Everybody, to some degree, is allowed to show positive feelings, though maybe not pride, mm-hmm. depending, especially if you're a woman, you know. like yeah, don't feel too good. Don't feel too good about yourself or don't brag or, you know, whatever. But, yeah, there's no matter who you are, you got messages about what, what kinds of emotional, what emotions were okay and which weren't and which, like, emotional expressions are okay and aren't. Yes, and it varies from your you know, your culture, your ethnic and racial group, and your particular family of origin. But these are great questions to begin asking yourself in terms of what you learned about emotions in your family growing up and in your community. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, the emotions, just kind of thinking about DBT and this question, like, emotions can, can trick us, I think. Like, I, I'm very, I really want to trust my my intuition and listen to myself and all of that and some people admire that about me that I seem to be very in touch with my feelings but the other side of it is that I can so easily use my mind to work myself up into all kinds of places that aren't actually present Mm -hmm. you know I can I can imagine a scenario where uh myself or someone I love like gets into an accident or somebody lets me tells me they have cancer or something and like just be gone like just be off to the races with that Mm -hmm. and have a whole emotional experience around it and it was totally made up yeah and maybe there's some valid like a there's usually a reason I'm doing that that's like trying to deal with some other underlying anxiety Mm-hmm. And B, maybe there's benefit to like rehearsing life situations. <laughs> I don't know. But it's but it's like, ah, it's really made up. Yeah. And that's where emotions can kind of be. And where like some of the Buddhist thought kind of comes in around thoughts and feelings being to some degree um, an illusion, you know, or something that we we kind of get attached to and hang on to. They're not necessarily real. Yeah. And it's it's tricky because I don't want to invalidate myself. I don't want to invalidate anyone else's experience. Uh, and I don't think that just because they're made up, they're bad. But, like, also sometimes I have to look at it and be like, mm-hmm. wow, you really created that situation for yourself, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you really went down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah, and I think many of us have, have been there, and it's it's hard. It's yeah. really hard. It feels so real. Yes, our minds are powerful. So powerful. 
but yeah, I just want to make sure I, I like we kind of answered that. I think I think so. Um, I think the answer is that it's complicated. We don't know, and you should talk to a professional. <laughs> is that like the answer for every listener question? Yes, <laughs> that's a big part of the answer. Yeah. Though sometimes people will write in questions that are like. Okay, so here's here's what's happening. Here's a scenario. Like, and there'll be like all these details, and it'll be really. And sometimes I have a very strong opinion, but I tend to get a lot of questions that are a little more general, like this, and um, they're really great to discuss. Um, but I don't get to have as strong of an opinion, <laughs> which I really enjoy. <laughs> so please send me send me your juicy family drama. Not to like downplay the pain of it or anything, but like I like having I like having strong opinions about it. You can tell people you should tell him off. Yeah. Or <laughs> dump her. <laughs> dump her. Or no, or like I mean it's sometimes it's like yeah, you absolutely do not have to go home for the holidays. You can if you you can if you decide that's the right choice for you, but you do not have to. And like stuff where where it's like Sometimes people just really need permission to do what's right for them. Yeah. So I'd like to give you, listener, permission to feel or not feel. (laughs) You know? If, like, is, is this a problem in your life? Or are you just worried that it is because you're comparing yourself to somebody else? It's a great point. Yeah. Because... I mean, I think we, we are all a bit different in terms of what our emotional expression is. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, before we uh, dive back into some DBT stuff and, and all the other pieces I wanted to get to today, we're going to listen to another song. Maybe one that's not like nine minutes long this time. <laughs> Um, here is a new, another new single from Angel Olsen called Lark. Uh, she's been releasing, she's released a couple songs in preparation for the next album. I've been a little more on top of new music releases lately. Uh, not always where I'm at, but, uh, this is really beautiful. Here's Lark from Angel Olsen. To forget you is to hide There is still so much left to recover If only we could start again Pretending we don't know each other I could not come back the same Not what it was back when you loved me. 
FM, best frequencies forever. I am Lily Sloan, and I was wrong about that last song being shorter than the one before. It was only a little bit shorter. That was Lark by Angel Olsen, a new release. Um, very excited for what this next album will bring based on the first couple singles that have been released. Um, before I dive back into my interview with Marielle Berg, I just want to remind you all uh, to help support BFF. Dot fm uh, by going to bff.fm slash donate um, we really appreciate when people become monthly donors we appreciate all donations but when people become monthly sustaining donors um, or as we like to call you besties um, it really helps us you know plan for the future and and know know what money is coming in this station is uh community uh, is is a volunteer run except we now have one employee our station founder i'm so glad to 
to have a real staff member here running the show. Um, but we're able to do that. We're able to keep the lights on. We're able to keep the equipment working um, because of your support. And uh, we could use more of it always. Um, so go to bff.fm slash donate and make a one-time donation or become a bestie. And you can really help support this thing that so many of us love. Uh, and thank you so much for listening. So, Marielle. Yes, Lily. Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, so we were talking a lot about DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. And something we didn't talk about that you wanted to dive into a little bit more is borderline personality disorder. And that's often where you hear about DBT is around it being kind of a go-to treatment for borderline personality disorder. Um, what What is, for people listening who don't know, <laughs> what is borderline personality disorder? Borderline personality disorder in a nutshell is a disorder that's really around um, or really about a pervasive emotional instability mm -hmm. and so I don't have the criteria in front of me exactly what they are but oftentimes people with BPD as we call it for short have a lot of trouble in relationships there can be an intense fear of being abandoned there's a lot of emotional instability and um, uh, feeling of very intense emotions and for many folks with BPD that can be manifested or a way to handle, I might say, the emotions, it um, results in addictive or impulsive or compulsive behaviors, and that's where some mm -hmm. of the self-harm comes in, um, substance abuse addictions, some eating disorders, yeah, um, you know, a lot of upheaval in relationships, and so DBT was originally designed to help treat people with borderline personality disorder, and since then it's been proven to be highly effective for a range of folks with different kind of struggles that all have emotional dysregulation at their core. Right. And so emotional dysregulation essentially means that you tend to feel a lot. You might know exactly what you're thinking, as we talked about it a moment ago, or you might be confused by your emotions. Um, you tend to be more sensitive. Emotions are, are a challenge for you in a variety of different ways. So that's sort of a shorthand around what emotional dysregulation is. Right, right. Right, and there's like, with anything that has a label of personality disorder, like there's actually a spectrum on which many of us can, can relate to a lot of these qualities without necessarily having, dealing with them to that, that severity. Absolutely. That is a great point. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this a little bit is because BPD is one of the diagnoses that I feel is the most stigmatized yeah. out of all of them. You don't get the same, same kind of stigma, stigma if you, um, you know, are bipolar or depressed mm -hmm. or anxious. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we have people who come in to see us who are like, I've read about borderline personality disorder, and I think it's me and other people who are like, oh my God, do I... My therapist suggested I should do a DBT group. Do I have borderline personality disorder? And so yeah. it, we have plenty of folks who come to us who don't have borderline personality disorder. Some have the full-blown. Yeah. 
and then it's you know disorder and then it's great that they're in dbt um for others they may recognize some of the traits as you said yeah um and for others it's not an issue at all and they just really want to learn the skills and do that kind of treatment but if you relate to having symptoms of borderline personality disorder um, please know that um, it's gotten really, I think, such a such a harmful kind of rap. It's so it's so deeply pathologized, and yeah. I have lots of ideas about why that is. I'm having some right now that have yeah. to do with sexism, but we are on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how I think in particular, as we were talking about, you know, anger and men and women, how yeah. expressions of anger are. Um, uh, responded to when they come from women, yeah, and how they re- how the people around them react to that, right? Well, and so so many of these symptoms, you put them together, and you think, oh, here's a you know, he, this is the stereotype of like a needy, clingy, erratic, hysterical woman, right? Yeah, yes. And actually, men 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 have BPD as well, um, but I think that we hear about it most in women, and it's talked about most in women from what I understand I don't know what the percentages are we certainly have people coming to us we have men who identify with it but it's it's more women yeah well and I had someone recently ask me if they thought if I thought that they had it and I was sort of caught off guard by that question Um, but I also realized that it might look different in men than in women Mm -hmm. as well and I and I and I feel like so much about it even even if it wasn't explicitly said was driven into me around it being sort of a woman's issue that I I would imagine it would look different in men because men are socialized different differently around these uh, particular feelings and issues so yes the way emotions might come out are different but I think the thing that um, men and women and anyone who identifies as um, gender queer or, or doesn't identify with the, the binary of man, man and woman, that the, the commonality, regardless of gender identity, is um, difficulty with emotions, mm-hmm. feeling really sensitive, feeling really overwhelmed by emotions often. Yeah. And yeah. How, it, how it manifests in particular for each person is a little bit different. Totally, totally. Yeah. And one other thing I want to say that for listeners, if you read about BPD and you think, yes, that's me, know that it is not a lifetime sentence. DBT is incredibly effective in helping people not have the symptoms anymore. And then wow. you, you no longer have, you know, if you don't have, if you don't qualify for the symptoms of BPD, you no longer have that disorder. So it really can save people's lives. Wow. So it's actually relatively curable. And that's not something you hear much about personality disorders. Yes. And when I was doing the DBT training with the folks um, at, uh, what are they called? Behavioral Tech. That's the training institute founded by Marsha Linehan. Mm-hmm. They, they talked about how they tried to work with the um, psychiatrists and doctors who were formulating the most recent version of the DSM because they really wanted to rename borderline personality disorder because it's they felt was inaccurate and so highly stigmatized they wanted to have it renamed to I think it was something like pervasive emotional dysregulation disorder yeah okay so when I looked it up on on my computer a few minutes ago it said BPD or otherwise known as emotional dysregulation disorder oh that's so great that that's wherever you found that 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 was just in my google search and there was sort of like a I'm I'm actually curious now um 
if it was like Mayo Clinic or something. It's, uh, yeah, the Mayo Clinic lists emotional dysregulation disorder as another name for it. Great. That's yeah. that's promising. That is really great. And I feel like that also makes more space for all kinds of people to seek support around it. Yes. Because, I mean, yeah, it's like, again, <laughs> nothing, you know, there there's like a spectrum of severity in how much these things like impact your life. But absolutely. And I wanted to just share a couple of analogies because I've heard two that I think can be useful. So I know Marsha Linehan talks about in her book that um, if you have BPD or emotion dysregulation disorder, it's sort of like you are a burn victim. Mm. So when an emotion happens, it's sort of like the wind blowing. If you are, you know, a third degree burn victim, like you feel every kind of thing so intensely. Yeah. And so the skills help you. She didn't say this, but this is my addition. Um, I feel like the skills help you have like some armor around that super sensitive burn Mm. skin. And then I had... um, a colleague, um, Sanozak, who runs the DBT program out of Stanford, say, and I don't know if this is her thing or if she got it from somewhere else, that if you feel your intentions, emotions really intensely and you have emotion dysregulation disorder, it's sort of like you've been given a racehorse, which is your emotional world. And unless you have the skills and the techniques um, to correctly ride that racehorse, you're going to keep getting thrown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's really good. That's really good. I, um, I think that's huge because it, it can be so easy to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and be like, it's bad to be this emotional. Yeah. It's like, what if it's actually fucking awesome to be really emotional? It can be Go ahead. I yeah, want to say no, something. Like, and the, like, yeah, there's, but also there's a certain amount of like learning how to use what you have. Yes. And fun. not let it use you. Right. Not getting thrown from that racehorse. Yeah. We try, we don't always have time to do it, but I know we try to spend some portion of time in group when we have new group members join talking about the positive things about being more emotional because it can get such a bad rap. Right. So if you're more emotional, you might be. Um, more sensitive to other people's feelings. You might be an artist, an activist, yeah, um, yeah. creative. There's so many, so many different positive things about being more emotional. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, as a highly sensitive person <laughs> with a lot of feelings, um, as much as I sometimes fantasize about being able to turn it off. I mean, I often fantasize about being able to turn it off because it's hard. (laughs) Um, Then I try to imagine life without it. And I just feel so sad and empty and like, uh, yes, okay, I'm feeling it now. (laughs) Um, But like, like, it's hard, but I don't know who or what I would be without like access to so much feeling and empathy and like it it gives me access to a lot of empathy yes and um depth and depth of experience and it's not all negative feelings and there's nothing wrong with negative feelings it's but it's not only that it's it's i feel i feel joy really intensely too 
which is such a gift that you can have the capacity to feel that intensely and that strongly. So that means that joy, love, yeah, all the more positive emotions you can feel to that um, extent as well. Yeah. So it can make life really rich. Yeah. And sometimes I would like to turn it down. Turn it down a notch. Turn it down a notch. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So do you feel you feel like uh, you've said what you want to say about BPD and DBT and uh, I don't know, trying to <laughs> run DMC? <laughs> said everything I wanted to say about run DMC. Oh, okay, good. Yes. I'm really glad that you were able to cover that topic as thoroughly really as you plan to. <laughs> it's my other area of expertise. Right, exactly. To, to the degree that you spoke about it just now. That's your expertise. That's it. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of a song but it's a, the it's not coming to me from like the 80s i don't i know what i was, can't think of it either yeah. I, I don't know um i'm gonna just press play on something real quick and then and then we're gonna talk about something else are you ready yes community radio all your friends are doing it 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 frequencies forever all right i just uh it's it's been interesting trying to integrate these um these bumpers into my show because i don't have a, a normal song like you know music show set up <laughs> i'm like okay we're just gonna play this now this little <laughs> 15 second song um so i wanted to switch gears and talk to you about your other podcast um, that you mentioned earlier and your other kind of area of focus, um, which is uh, your, your podcast is It's Just a Cookie and your website is uh, cookie, it's just cookierevolution.com. Dot org. Dot org. Sorry, cookierevolution.org. And your work around um, supporting people around body image and food issues. And... Uh, I was I was on your podcast. It's just a cookie, <laughs> and uh, we talked about. Um, I mean, you you talk about in all your episodes, but about um, learning to have a, a different kind of relationship to food and body image that isn't uh, dependent on reaching a certain goal weight and dependent on restricting things from your diet. And so, um, I'm wondering, you know, what kind of motivated you to to put some energy into that work when you're already doing all this other hard stuff? Well, I think one of my main motivations had to do or has to do with my frustration around dominant narratives that I hear in the therapy world when people are struggling with, with food. Yeah. And so, um, and this is a criticism I have of DBT and how it handles issues around food. So if someone comes, I mean, and not just DBT, but I feel like all therapy yeah. in general, where there's usually the assumption that if someone is coming in and saying they're overeating or compulsively eating or binge eating or emotionally eating, which are all kind of different terms for somewhat similar behaviors, the general go-to for therapist, and it will vary depending on what kind of theoretical orientation they work from, but the go-to has to do with that those behaviors are about emotional reasons. Mm -hmm. There's something emotional going on causing that person to eat in that way. 
Mm-hmm. And that to me has become over time incredibly frustrating because it leaves out so much. So this isn't to say that there aren't sometimes emotional reasons and that's part of it. But if we aren't addressing the role of restriction or a diet kind of mentality, which essentially means generally not eating enough or having certain foods as off limit or taboo. And if we aren't looking at that first, someone can spend 20 years in therapy talking about the emotional reasons why they eat the way that they do without any real relief. Right. Yeah. I mean that yeah that's so huge because it's such a it's there's so many complicated pieces like my my introduction to kind of looking at my relationship to food and body image differently and like stepping outside of oh I just have to like fix my body and be thinner um, and getting caught up in like trying different fad diets and things like that was was reading Janine Roth who I think really does a good job of presenting the emotional aspect of, of food. Like, oh, here's ways that we might be trying to uh, meet the emotional needs that weren't met with this other thing, right? And that was helpful to me. But as I continue to do work around this stuff, it, it was just not the whole picture. And and it is it kind of does leave out that restriction piece yes that it's it's not just you need to stop overeating in many in many cases with the people i work with i've i've often discovered that they were under eating most of the day and then at night when they were alone and they were also dealing with feelings but they were dealing with being fucking hungry Mm-hmm. They were hungry. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it puts your body through so much to sort of like have that cycle of like, you know, restriction and then kind of overcompensating. And Yes. And even if people say, you know, I, I'm not restricting, I'm eating all the foods. If you are eating the ice cream or the pizza or any food that you deem quote unquote bad and you're telling yourself while you're eating it, I shouldn't be eating this. Yep. This is bad. This is wrong. Tomorrow I won't eat anymore. Mm-hmm. You're going to eat in a uh, more intense, frenzied, kind of last supper type eating way. Yeah. So even if you're not actually doing the restriction, the restriction in your mind can really influence how you interact with those foods. Yeah. And I have yet to meet a person who um, tells me that they are compulsively eating or overeating or emotionally eating who doesn't have some kind of history with trying to lose weight. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and the other, you know, the other thing I see people do and it's so culturally like the norm and sanctioned, but I've I've noticed this such such a big habit that people have. Um and and they, I mean they they do it cuz they also think it's fine. Um but like, oh, like the way that they might be able to eat the ice cream or the burger or whatever without the guilt is, is oh, I deserve it because I worked out today. Mm-hmm. And so it's still dependent on, you know, something totally separate from what is what is going on in your body. Yeah. And what, and what do you want, you know, what's pleasurable right now too. Mm-hmm. And that's very much the dieting or weight loss mindset. That, I've, that idea that, 
I've burned X number of calories, therefore now I can, quote unquote, indulge in this food. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, 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 like if you practice intuitive eating where you're, which is hard, it's hard work, but where you're learning over time how to, how to get, get better recognizing your body's hunger and fullness. It's kind of like getting better at recognizing our subtle emotions. It's like, oh, okay, is, am I hungry? Am I full? What, what do I feel like eating? What, do, what sounds good right now? Um, it, you know, whether or not I worked out that day, the, the actual thing that my body tells me might, might surprise me. Mm-hmm. You know, there are days when I work out that I do happen to want a much like richer meal. And there are days that I work out that I don't. Yeah. And these things aren't one to one. It's not calories in, calories out. It's not like within one day, this is a contained, it's like over the course of a week, your body might go through different waves and motions and, and need different things. And, and I think we really want it to be a lot simpler than that. And it's not. And, and even the term workout, which of course I use too, or exercise, but mm-hmm. I've been trying to move away a bit from it yeah. in the intuitive eating book by, um, who is it? Ellen Satter? No. Ellen Satter is also great. She, um, people can find her online. She has like the rules of normal eating. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, tips for feeding a healthy family. She, she's really wonderful, but intuitive eating is by... Um, oh, Evelyn Triboli and Elaine Elise, Rush. Elise, Elise Rush. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. They, they have 10 principles of intuitive eating and they talk about joyful movement, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. may or may not resonate with listeners. Mm-hmm. But I, I like thinking about movement and what feels good and right in your body on any given day versus exercise or working out. Because for so many people that is laden with a lot of history around punishment, yeah. weight loss, compensating for the thing you ate right. the day before Work that you it feel. Out. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's something, it's kind of been an interesting journey I've been on around exercise because, I mean, there's been so many different phases, but recently it's that I um, have had some injuries in the last six months and, and it came to finally like, probably the best thing I can do to heal is is do a lot of core training, right? I don't think it's joyful to do a <laughs> bunch of abs shit, you know? And and so that's that that kind of complicated it for me, right? Mm-hmm. Because I actually need to. Mm-hmm. And so and and not everything we do can be joyful. But what I think I realized was that my approach to okay i need to i just and then i found like the particular class that was the most convenient for me i needed to suck it up and pay the the money for it because i just wasn't doing the stuff at home that i needed to do and i actually liked how i felt after the class sometimes during the class but i went into it with a few things one you don't have to do a single fucking burpee if you don't want to, and if you don't know what a burpee is, you jump up in the air, you then jump down on the ground into a push-up position, you do a push-up, you jump back into a squat, and you jump back up into the air. I hated burpees so much, and so I promised myself I didn't need to do any. It was totally okay to never do one ever. Um, And then (laughs) 
Is that from CrossFit, the burpees? It's like, yeah, it shows up in a lot of like cross Mm -hmm. training, kind of circuit training kinds of things. Um, A few months in, I'm doing the burpees. (laughs) (laughs) I don't always do them, but I am doing them or I'll do, I'll do most of it, but I won't do the push up or whatever. But but it's just been interesting kind of developing a relationship with something like that that doesn't totally fit in the mold of like joyful um, or maybe redefining what joyful is, but also approaching it from a place of really wanting my body to be okay. Help, like for, for my back and, and to be strong. And that that's what I needed to do to get there and so I'm not going to lose weight I'm not going to look a certain way even though those thoughts will creep in but that's not why I'm going and it really it was like okay but for the long term if I want to be able to do the joyful movement that is so important to me I have to do this a couple times a week and doing something hard that I don't love from a place of self-care has really been a shift That's such a wonderful point. I'm so glad that you brought that up because you're right. The joyful movement can be a high bar. Mm -hmm. And um, what you're talking about is doing movement that helps you support, do the helps you support doing all the other things in your life that might bring you pleasure and joy. Yeah. But that's kind of a slog. Like you're not really enjoying it. Right. It's like not immediately gratifying. Yeah. But, but it's also, it wasn't that long term to realize that like, oh, I'm stronger now and I kind of don't mind doing this thing that I didn't like before. And that's joyful to be yes. like, oh, I can do it. And I take pride in 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 that. And, you know, I, I don't also don't want to be ableist like this is according to everybody's place and what they're able to do. Yeah. But um, it's just an interesting balance between like how do we figure out what we need to do to set ourselves up for the future and for ongoing health, and then what do we need to do to listen to ourselves in the moment? Yes. And those are sometimes, those sometimes feel a little bit at odds. Um, You've yeah. also really changed, it sounds like, your your mindset, so you're not doing these exercise core classes, you know, to, as you said, lose weight or get thinner or change, you know, your body in a particular way. So it's a very different um, motivation behind it. Yeah. And so for so many people, they approach movement as, as I said, a punishment. Yep. As a way to, um, you know, atone for sins around food. Mm. Atone? Exactly. You're getting atoned. <laughs> <laughs> I go to my exercise class to really get atoned. They gave Jane Fonda <laughs> leotards, yeah. leg well, warmers. And it's like... Yeah, it's really, um, it's hard to separate from those things. And like I said, those thoughts will still come in. But the but the fact is, is that like uh, exercise that's dependent, that where results mean that you look different um, is going to be really disappointing. Like exercise doesn't, like it, it, it can have that impact, usually not without also restricting your diet and doing other things. And then it's a short-term thing. It doesn't really give you long-term, you know, gratification. (laughs) And it's, so it's really, it's really hard because it's so culturally ingrained in us that work, working out gets you looking a certain way, like the people who are in the advertisements for working out. And it's just, like not really true like I I spent months training 
hard for a triathlon, I looked exactly the same from start to finish. Mm -hmm. But I was really strong and I was able to do the triathlon. And it's not about what it looks like. Right? Ideally, it's not. Yeah. And and to say that, particularly for women, that's very countercultural. Because for most of us, we're trained sort of from day one to look at our bodies as projects to always be worked on, as things on display, and not as instruments to help us move through life. Yeah, right, right, exactly. It's, it's, and that takes us, that, that kind of sets us even further removed from um, being able to listen to our bodies. Yes. Because our bodies become a thing that we need to control. And, and that we can't trust. And that we can't trust. That's right. Exactly. And, and when, I, when I'm in a place where I can really listen to what I want to eat and when I want to eat as much as possible, honestly, even when it does go wrong, it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Even when I realize afterwards, oh, actually, that meal was really disappointing or that wasn't that didn't feel satisfying or oh I don't feel that good now yeah that happens but it's like okay (laughs) there'll be another meal (laughs) it was just a meal Mm -hmm. (laughs) right move on move on next yeah yeah and I think some of that is really hard to to work through because it all feels so loaded yeah yeah feel like it has you know a particular meal has so much meaning right right so how do you um when you're when you're doing that work you know with people who are struggling with food and body image stuff who are also seeing you for dbt is there a way that you kind of try to incorporate this mindset into that well that's that's a a great question and one that i still feel like i'm in process with Mm mm-hmm because DBT is a particular way of working with some of these issues that, as I said, is not something I can get behind any longer. So if people come to me for food and body image issues, I let them know right off the bat that I um, don't work on weight loss. Great. Yeah. I usually tell people that too. Yeah. And so if they want that, then I'm probably not the right therapist for them. Um, And this is, I wanted to be able to work with people in a different way, which is why I started coaching which is separate separate from my therapy practice because I wanted to be um, more political. Yeah. And um, in my work with folks mm. and more directive than I felt like the therapy work was allowing me because I, I feel like that's really needed to help people heal from food and body image concerns. To totally. me, it's, it's very much a culturally created and supported problem. Right. And what's required to heal from an eating disorder is to 100% go against the grain of what almost everyone else around you is doing. Yep. Which is talking about good foods and bad foods and clean eating and cleanses and detoxes. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's really exhausting. I mean, I've had so many clients be like, I didn't want to become an activist. I just wanted to not have my eating disorder anymore. And I'm like, (laughs) I know. I know, and healing from your eating disorder ends up requiring some activism, like yes. even in small ways, even even in dealing with what is hap- like happening in the lunchroom at work. 
Right. Or telling friends, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about diets. Yeah. Or I don't want to hear you say negative things about your body. Totally. Or like in some cases having to go to HR and be like, can we stop promoting like dieting at work? Yeah. You know, as part of the wellness program or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really, you know, sometimes when I think about getting a job in a company, I'm like, oh God, this is the part about office culture that Mm -hmm. I'll have to deal with because it's so normalized. Yeah, I had someone say to me, I, you know, I work in an office where they're, they're very health focused, which is often, in, you know, today in 2019 is the code word. We say yep. wellness or health. Yep. And people are really talking about thinness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they, I mean, they might not even, they might say, oh, no, it's just about being healthy. But people have so conflated weight and health to a degree that's backfiring so hard on people. Yes. And so I like to ask people if the thing they're doing supposedly for their health or their wellness actually led to weight gain, would they still do it? <laughs> That's a really <laughs> good question. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say yes. Oh, I put a little like devil ears on for that one. <laughs> right. Right. And I get it. I'm not like bring it on. You know, mm-hmm. I live in this culture too and I'm Me too. insecure and scared and, you know, yeah, it's deep. It runs deep. Especially if you're in a bigger body or a fat body, which is a word I feel comfortable ascribing to myself. It's very hard to, you know, move in the world and not have people judge you overtly or covertly or make a lot Mm -hmm. of assumptions about your emotional and physical health based on the size of your body. So it's it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. And for thin people to have people assume that they're fine. Yes. When they're not. Yes. Which is... Also, which is a different kind of pain, mm-hmm. and it's it's like obviously there's they, there's a lot of privileges that come with being thin for whatever reason you are thin, but that's that's kind of the other side of it that's really hard. I have a friend who um, really struggles with food, and she has told me about going to therapists who say, well, "What's the problem? You're thin." Oh God. Yeah. Oh, that's so angering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I know. It, and it's the, the, the right amount of thin. It's not because if you're too thin. Right, right, right. Then you get right. judged. Yeah. Then people assume you're anorexic and yes. that's very stigmatized and yeah, yeah, all of it. Well, I definitely think people should listen to your podcast, not not necessarily the one that I was on, even though that's fine too, but just because I think when you're trying to break free from this kind of thinking and, and find a new way to be with yourself, you really do need a lot of ongoing input and support and that can that can be listening to podcasts mm-hmm. you know um i also often tell people to listen to dietitians unplugged oh, that's great so great love glennis i should probably get her as a guest on this on here too you should Have she was to do on, it remotely you would yeah she's fabulous she's in la she was also on my podcast oh great yeah and i recently had um her co-host Aaron Flores on as well. Yeah, he's wonderful. Yeah, so there's there's so many resources. There's a lot of Facebook groups for like people who want to try to live a health at every size lifestyle, which is you know removing weight from the occasion from the uh, equation and just focusing on what do I how do I want to take care of myself and that you can work on your health without making it about weight. Yes. Yeah, and then your weight will will be what it is. Mm -hmm. You know as a side effect or not yeah yeah well we're coming to the end and i'm just so grateful to have had you here um i have uh 
a two questions for you. One is, if you could go back uh, to pre-therapy, Marielle, <laughs> the look on your face is incredible. Do you know what I did before I was a therapist? So cringy. Oh my God. Okay, tell me. Ask um, the question. Well, I guess, yeah, you were a lawyer, right? <laughs> <laughs> but okay, pre-you actually going to therapy. Oh, okay. Not yeah. therapy school. Got yeah, it. Yeah, pre-you pre going to therapy. Okay. If there was something... If there's something that you know now about the process that might have been helpful to you then to know before you started or as you were starting, what what might it be? That your therapist has probably heard everything. <laughs> <laughs> like you're not going to shock them. They're not going to be horrified. Mm -hmm. They've heard it all before. Yeah. Unless you did a murder. Right. Then maybe they have not heard that. I mean, but if you did a murder and you went, you know, and like it's known about, that might be different. Yes. But if you did a murder that like is still a secret, I might struggle with that a little bit, honestly. But for the most part, for the majority of things you're bringing to your therapist. Yeah. Um, because shame is such, I think what I'm, the reason why I answered that way is I, yeah. I know I felt a lot of shame when I first went to therapy. That this is, um, this is the realm in which, in which we work in human behavior and human struggles. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. That's really uh, that's really good, I think, to remind people because, yeah, I mean, I've had people tell me things finally after like three years, you yeah, know? and and I'm so grateful that we had a relationship for long enough for them to feel comfortable to do that to tell you. And yeah, there's, everyone's going to be on a different, uh, I guess, timeline with with how that trust and comfort builds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, final question. The treasure is buried somewhere in San Francisco. What is the treasure and where is it buried? Oh, I think the treasure is buried in the quiche. Any, 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 either, any quiche. No, 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 oh. no. Cause I'm thinking either the vegetarian or the meat quiche at Tartine Bakery. Oh, that is where it's buried. Watch your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the treasure is. Maybe the treasure is just the quiche, but maybe that's enough. Maybe I need to set my bar at like tartine quiche being enough. It might it's be pretty good. Yeah, eat it with a fork just in case you hit that treasure. Yeah, you don't want to yeah. break any. Yeah, exactly. Molars. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, people can can find they can find uh, it's just a cookie and the skillful podcast two separate podcasts um, pretty much wherever the podcasts are um they can also find your therapy group practice for dbt is it's at bay area dbt and couples counseling it's bay area dbt cc.com awesome okay bay area dbt cc.com and then the um and then it's cookie revolution.org yes awesome um i i think that you know something in here resonated with you definitely look into it more um yeah thanks for listening as always follow radical advice on twitter uh, at radical underscore advice and on facebook stay tuned send me your life questions at radicaladviceshow.com um and uh tune in next week uh i'll be here um and keep listening next up is life and times of the bourgeoisie i'm gonna close things out with um 
uh, this really cool song from Joyro. It's a newer one called Dogs. And um, have a lovely rest of your Tuesday.
frequencies for bringing the underground to the foreground <laughs> 